This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. This week, we are thrilled to have the first installment of our Little Gold Men book club, and we have a really special guest for it. Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief, Radika Jones, is going to join me and Joanna to talk about Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, which is going to be a film out this Christmas directed by Greta Gerwig. Uh, you may have seen a feature about it with a lot of uh, first-look photos in Vanity Fair recently. And in the end of this week's episode, we're going to share an interview that Richard did with Michelle Williams, who is in a movie called After the Wedding that is out this week and also is Emmy-nominated for Fosse Verdon. We've talked a lot about her recently. But first, we're just going to catch up on the bits of news that are out there about the movies we have our eye on. And uh, it's been kind of a big rush of fall movie trailers lately that quieted down a little bit. But there was this pretty impressive trailer, I thought, for 1917, uh, the World War I movie by Sam Mendes. It was kind of one of the question marks we had with all these fall festivals since it hadn't shown up anywhere. Now there's a trailer. Um, what do you guys think of it? I think it's interesting that there's a Dunkirk prequel. <laughs> I mean, boys running around in the mud. It's a strong genre. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I joke because the, the trailer is cut in such a way and, and scored in such a way that it's clearly trying to draft off of um, Dunkirk. I mean, there's even like kind of a ticking, you know, clock sound in the 1917 trailer, which was a huge part of uh, Dunkirk's um oral aesthetic mm -hmm. um other than that though i mean it, it you know it looks interesting i'm a sucker for war movies weirdly even though there's a lot about war movies that you know that i shouldn't like um but yeah i'm curious to see what mendez does now that he's uh, free of the the bond world yeah, like the way they emphasize, like he is the director of Skyfall and then move on. That is the only thing that they want to talk about that Sam Mendes has made. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you know this about me, Katie, uh, but I really enjoy the actor Richard Madden. and uh, We've never talked about him before. Yeah, this is the first time that I've ever mentioned it, I believe. Um, and he is in this film, and I'm excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also got uh, Tom and Baratheon, um, who's... Dean Charles Chapman, is that his name? Yep, Dean Charles Chapman. Mm -hmm. Nailed uh, all three. It does, and then Benedict Cumberbatch, a former British internet boyfriend, now replaced by Richard Madden, probably. Uh, apparently Andrew Scott's in there, too. I'm now looking at the IMDb list and realizing there's a real murderer's row in here. Yeah, but then, like, a whole bunch of, like, anonymous... But yeah, very Dunkirky. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be curious to see George McKay, who I think is kind of the lead 
sort of gain a higher profile because I feel like he's someone who's been simmering for a while. He was the kind of eldest yeah. son in Captain, Captain Fantastic, Fantastic and yeah. like and he's been in a few other things where he's the lead in Pride, which is a great little movie Love about movie. Um, yeah. gay rights but also labor politics. Uh, he's he's Hamlet in Daisy Ridley's Ophelia. That's what um. I was thinking of. So I don't know, it'd be interesting to see if he can finally kind of crack through the the sort of American consciousness um uh, w- with this movie, which, you know, promises to be pretty big. Yeah, there's also a Colin Firth in what from the trailer just appears to be the Kenneth Branagh in Dunkirk role. I mean, I like Dunkirk a lot. So if this really is just trying, truly trying to be Dunkirk and not just marked it from the trailer, I'm kind of fine with that. I have a question. Has there mm-hmm. ever been a bad coal miner movie? Because <laughs> I don't think Are you thinking has. of, of uh, Billy Elliot and Pride? or <laughs> And Brassed Off and like oh, that man. whole, and isn't, the full Monty a coal miner movie anyway I'm a fan of the coal miner the coal miner subplot in Chernobyl is pretty good (laughs) um (laughs) is is having Colin Firth and then Benedict Cumberbatch and then Richard Madden just like generations of internet boyfriends like is that and Andrew Scott and Andrew Scott yeah and Mark Strong there's certain corners of the internet that take Mark Strong as their internet boyfriend Sure. It's interesting that Tumblr has finally produced a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, so it, did Harry Styles just not make it into this version? Like he accidentally got cast in Dunkirk instead and the Tumblr <laughs> war movie is the one he belonged in? Um, I'll ask him, but he's running an errand, so, but he'll be back in a second, okay. so I'll ask him when he's back. <laughs> okay. Um, the other trailer I wanted to get into, which I think uh, it really only has in common with 1917 that it's all men, is the trailer for The Lighthouse, which just looks like the oddest duck movie in the world. It's Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson with elaborate accents in a lighthouse. Uh, this movie premiered at Cannes, so we know a lot more about it. Richard, I believe you've seen it. Um, it's, it's a pretty striking trailer. Do you expect this to be part of our awards conversation at all? seen it and reviewed it even um yeah i mean i think that its biggest chances are willem dafoe in supporting um it is a a really wild movie you know i I think it's i i respect the moxie of a director like robert eggers who had such a huge acclaimed hit out of sundance with the witch in 2015 and then didn't follow it up with you know jurassic world 3 or whatever he actually kind of doubled down on the weirdness and made this very you know, esoteric, inaccessible black and white uh, movie with crazy, intricate dialogue um, that isn't really about anything. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's sort. I mean, it sort of is. It's about madness, essentially. It's about two men kind of driving each other to to a point of um, almost inhumanity. Um, uh, you know, that said, I think it's going to have a pretty limited audience. But Defoe is doing this incredible Shakespearean turn with these towering monologues. Um, that, you know, he's been sort of back in the kind of awards consciousness recently with uh, Florida Project and, and other things. So uh, I, I would be curious to see if, if that movie can push him in, into that kind of contention. Well, the fact that he's fresh off a nomination for At Eternity's Gate, which no one expected, as far as I can tell. I mean, that movie mm-hmm. was very underseen. It's an odd thing. It, he, it's a great performance that he gives. And I think probably more relatable than what he's doing in uh, The Lighthouse. But he is kind of in the pocket with the Oscars in a way that means you can't count him out. Yeah, I mean, people at least know who Van Gogh was, you know. <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> is this, um, <laughs> this based on a real lighthouse captain. Uh, I mean, if it is, uh, hats off to Eggers, but I, <laughs> not to my knowledge. Uh, you know, it's 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 an odd little curio of a movie um, that one that didn't really I didn't really connect with uh, on any sort of level beyond appreciating its very meticulously crafted aesthetic. Um, but like, 
I don't know. I, again, I respect that that this is a very singular vision that uh, someone who could have, who presumably had a lot of opportunities set before him, uh, and and he chose to kind of to do this thing. I mean, it, it's comparable in a way to Ari Aster following up Hereditary with Midsommar, an even more alienating movie, an even more daring movie. You know, so while well, I didn't love The Lighthouse. Uh, and many others did, by the way, from Cannes. Um, I'm, it made me that much more curious to see what Robert Eggers does next. Well, to wrap up our kind of news catch-up segment of the show, uh, the full New York Film Festival lineup is out. We've talked previously about how The Irishman will be opening it. Um, they'll have also Marriage Story and Motherless Brooklyn closing it out, which makes it a very nice uh, New York trilogy they've got for the for the big three slots at the Sears Festival. Um, a lot of things in the lineup are things uh, from Cannes, uh, like Bong Joon-ho's uh, Parasite, which won the... Palm d'Or. Um, the one thing that I noticed on there that is new is the new film from Kelly Reichardt, who made Certain Women most recently and makes Cut Off. Um, I'm looking at the IMDb page. There are no really big stars in this, so I'm not sure it's going to be something to talk about Oscar-wise, but I wanted to point out since I like her work. Um, anything else strike you, Richard, for people who might be in New York to see the festival or anything like that? Well, the Kelly Reichardt movie, First Cow, is interesting because, well, one, the lead of the movie, the character, their name is Cookie Figowitz, which, like, sure. Great name. I'm on board for that. <laughs> um, but uh, this is, I think it's an entirely male cast. It's about fur trappers in the Oregon Territory in the early 19th century. So a departure from the, you know, sort of female-centered stories that were in certain, that made up certain women, but a return, in a way, to the kind of pioneer days of Meek's Cutoff, uh, another movie mm-hmm. that she did um, with an actress who we might be speaking about, uh, about soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that, uh, I mean, Kelly Reichardt and Michelle Williams have had such an amazing collaboration that it's almost disappointing that they're not working together in this, but it does seem like she's got, um, you know, something specific in mind here. I just want her to, to pop up in one scene of this movie and say, cookie figure with cookie nasty. <laughs> Did you ask her that in your interview? Because you know, that's, oh, that's a request you had the opportunity to make. Had I only. <laughs> so before we get into our book club segment, a spoiler warning for Little Women, a book that is almost 200 years old, and I believe is spoiled on Friends, among many other places. But if you don't want to know the details of the plot of Little Women, please uh, come back and listen to this later. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. So we'd like to welcome you to the first installment of our four-part Little Gold Men book club. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. And then joining us for our first installment, we're so excited to have Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief, Radhika Jones. Hi, Radhika. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we were thrilled when you basically, uh, you know, cornered me and Joanna and said, I need to come talk about Little Women, which we were obviously <laughs> so excited about. Um, what was it that made you just feel so strongly about coming and joining us for Little Women? 
Well, this is a book that I feel like I've held close to my heart since I was a girl. Um, my sister and I, we literally had little women dolls. We we had these dolls that we collected, and there was a little quartet of them that were Meg and Joe and Beth and Amy. And I don't know about you two, but I, I, it's like the Beatles. You have to pick your own, <laughs> right? You're like, are you a Paul or a John? It's like I, and I, I'm going to confess this. I always identified with Beth, but I didn't want to die uh, an untimely death. I just, <laughs> I had a lot of, you know, as a, I was a sort of introverted child, so I had a lot of um, sympathy for her, her shyness. And I feel like the victory that she wins over it when she goes to thank Mr. Lawrence for sending the piano is just something that always stuck with me, um, how she finds the courage in herself to do that. So I have this very sentimental attachment to it. But then I also studied literature. And and I think this book has a really important place in American literature, just in terms of the way that it embraces a work ethic um, and also a certain picture of femininity that is, I think, a little broader than we might expect, and even looking back, and I hope we can talk about that. Yeah, Joanna, we've talked about this amongst ourselves a little bit, and um, not to link you with your name, but it does seem, I think you have pretty clearly have identified with Joe since you also read this book for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone thinks they're, uh, most people, I think, think they're Joe, because Joe is the, the center of the book, right? I kind of wanted to be Beth because everyone loves Beth the most. You know what I mean? She's this like precious object that everyone loves. And if truth be told, like now I'm a bit more of a Joe, I think, because, you know, she's a writer, all of that. But when I was little, I was probably also a bit of an Amy because I was the youngest. So, you know, I, I, I get it. I get it. I get that youngest well, child baby syndrome. And so, the great you know. thing about Amy is she's so ambitious. Yeah. Uh, you know, she that really is what she brings to the table and she finds a way to channel it in ways that are interesting. I should say also um with regard to my Beth fixation that my I had an older sister who was very clearly the Joe in our family, so when you know, so <laughs> Joe was taken, so it just wasn't Joe's an taken. option. <laughs> you had to pick your lane. That's right. Well, yeah, that's the thing is like I you know, people tend to boil the four little women down to essential characteristics, which is understandable if you're going to write like a BuzzFeed quiz about it or do, uh, you know, try to describe it quickly to people. But I've been bristling recently reading various articles calling Amy is the spoiled brat. And I'm like, no, she, I mean, she's the youngest. She's a kid when this story starts. And there's a whole stretch of the book where she's older and she's not a spoiled brat. So, um, you know, justice for Amy March is my point. Uh, yeah. And Amy, this. I think, goes through the most interesting transformation over the course of the book. Like she goes from this spoiled brat who like gets her pickled limes thrown out by the teacher to have, you know, kind of putting Laurie in his place when they're in Europe. It's a really interesting transformation. And you think about in the 1994 movie where they had a young Amy and an old Amy cast. I think that's the only character that had younger and older versions. And um, in the Greta Gerwig movie coming out at Christmas, which is the reason this is in her book club, it's going to be played just by one actress by Florence Pugh, which is going to be really fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting because you and I were talking about this a little bit, Katie. You have to cast these women so carefully uh, as as we think about them growing. Like thinking about Emma Watson being a young mother is something we'll have to think of as she's playing, she's playing Meg. Meg. Yeah, and thinking about Florence Florence Pugh is such clever casting because I can really see her like being convincingly quite young and then convincingly older. You know what I mean? And I think that's really, really smart casting. So and I'm interested to see it. I think we can all agree that Timothy Chalamet was born to play Laurie. 
Oh my god, his hair alone is just hair alone. <laughs> such an essential part of the character. <laughs> He's gonna break all the hearts forever. <laughs> it's just how it's gonna be. Well, I had the idea to go character by character, which is sort of how the book goes. You get a you know a Joe chapter, a Meg chapter, um, to talk about both the book itself and then what we're expecting from the movie. Uh, and I think it makes the most sense to start with Joe, who's gonna be played by Saoirse Ronan in the upcoming movie. Um, and Joanne, as you pointed out, she's kind of the central figure. She seems the most clearly based on Louise May Alcott. The way that she is coded as a tomboy is really interesting to read now in this time of, you know, more LGBTQ representation. You kind of wonder about who Joe might be if she were born in 2019. Joanna, you said you related the most to Joe. Radiki, you said your sister was the Joe. I mean, reading this now as adults, do you, do we all still feel that, you know, that central pull to Joe as the character in this book and, you know, imagine her as the heroine of a movie? I think, I mean, I think the way in which Joe sticks out in terms of her being so rough and tumble, being so awkward, but so loving, all, all of that, she's, she's just so compelling. And it's not, it's not just us as readers, but Louisa May Alcott puts that into the book where everyone's like, you know, she describes Joe sort of commanding a room and all this sort of stuff. It's impossible to look away, which is a little, what, slightly conceited if, if this is the character who's coded as her. Uh, the most <laughs> fascinating March sisters, obviously Joe. Um, but yeah, and then there's just all this this long stretch of the book that's about her trying to be an author, wanting to be an author, wanting to be a young published author, wanting to support her family, her talking about the pride that she takes. Radhika was talking to us a little bit about this off air, but I wanted to highlight it as well. This pride that she takes in being able to support her family is such an interesting story to read about that time. If you're more used to, you know, British literature of this era, you don't get that same story as much. And and I think it makes it really a really fascinating read. And Radhika, I'm, I'm curious for you to elaborate on that as well. Well, I think I find it really interesting. You know, the book is obviously focused on young women, and I find it interesting that Jo exists in a commercial space in the book. She is making a living as a writer, and we we see that in detail. She talks about the process of publication. She receives her check for $100 in the mail. She immediately sends Marmy and Beth to the seaside with her money that she's earned, and that's her first big check. You know, she's been earning money along the way. And I, I find it really interesting that in this book, she, and and not, for example, her father, and not Laurie, and not even John Brooke, she's the person um, who kind of drives the economy, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. she's, she's, that's where we see those kinds of transactions happening. We know there are men of business in the book. There are soldiers. Mr. March is a soldier. Um, John Brooke goes to fight in the Civil War as well. They are doing men's work as, as we think of it. But Joe also is doing work and being rewarded for it. And, and as we know from the, both the real story and the continuation of this series, becomes quite successful and even famous. So it's interesting to see the seeds of that very American quality of like making your own way in the world rest in Joe. The other thing I would say about Joe is that, you know, on the one hand, she is the most fascinating character in the book. On the, on the other hand, she does, it, part of that, a big part of that is because of her flaws. She comes out flaws first. She's clumsy. She's always spilling things on herself. You know, she's um, indiscreet. She makes trouble for herself um, because of her temper and because of her quick tongue. Those flaws are are actually, I think, meant to attract us. Um, even mm-hmm. even as part of the the plot for all of the girls is about they're trying to overcome their particular faults. I think that Louisa May Alcott has an understanding that Joe's flaws are also endearing, that they they give her a kind of, maybe we would call it today, an authenticity um, that, that we all respect. 
And I think that comes through in the whole book, not to like jump too far ahead, but um, as you say, like all the all the young women have, you know, their vanities or or whatever it is, their obstacles, and they're written so lovingly because Louisa May Alcott patterned them on herself and her three sisters, and uh, you cannot, as you say, beat that authenticity. That's why, like, I I think of. Greta Gerwig is being such a such a good match for this because the authenticity of Lady Bird, which was so based on her own experience growing up, is part of what made that film so powerful, so potent to me, is you can't fake that, right? And I think the same is true of Louisa May Alcott. She's painting this accurate, flaws and all, but loving portrait of her sisters. And I and what I think that accomplishes with the book is because there's these different uh, forms of femininity, right? The more domestic, more artistic, more what have you. And they're all depicted in a loving manner that it makes it okay for any young woman and, and young man, uh, if you identify, um, reading the book to feel like it's okay to be how I am. There's a sister who will love me and write a story about me uh, <laughs> in, a, in a glowing way, right. you know, and that's, that's why it's so powerful, I think, or a reason why. That was one of the great quotes from Greta Gerwig in the feature we did about the movie where she talked about how Lady Bird was based on her life, but Little Women, as her agent pointed out to her, apparently was also so personal to her and because she read it as a child, as we did. Uh, she said, this feels like autobiography. When you live through a book, it almost becomes the landscape of your inner life. It becomes part of you in a profound way. Um, and Joanna, you and I talked about kind of reading books about you know, heroines like Joe and like young enough that you wonder if you modeled yourself after them. Um, and, I, and I see that as such an encouraging aspect for this movie that she feels that personal attachment that you were mentioning. Yeah, it's interesting, but it is interesting to read the book now in 2019 and there are things that work so well for me as a kid that work less well for me now. Like I I was I'll admit uh, and once again, Katie, I don't know if I'm going off script, but I'll admit that I was frustrated by Beth's death this time because um like her her initial illness is still like very gripping and emotional, but the death that comes in the second act, it's sort of like unexplained and it's like why and she wastes away and is barely in the book at the end and and uh, you know I was I was like I wanted reasons why and I guess that's that's uh, the truth of life you don't always have a reason why but I wanted I I felt like I couldn't grasp onto it the way that I could as a kid when I was just sort of like obviously floods of tears reading it so um I don't know no, let's talk about let's talk about Beth. I mean, it does seem like she guys by the end of the book she is kind of there as this emotional fulcrum and you know pulls Amy and Laurie together and you know gets Joe kind of motivated to start living her own life again. Um so it is interesting, but I think I agree with you Joanna that it, it is because she disappears so much as a character because she's an invalid and kind of there um mostly to motivate Joe. Um Radika, where where does Beth's death strike you now? Well, it still makes me cry, I will say. There's a <laughs> lot in this book. There's a lot in this book that still makes me cry. And the proposals still, you know, it's like you still dream about them. I don't know. Um, look, it's the 19th century. Um, whatever Beth died of, it's possible there wasn't a name for it. You know, it's it's not. I, I think this is very common in the literature of the time. It is a little frustrating to come at it as a modern reader and think like, why didn't they work harder to save her or, you know, if Get only, some if antibiotics only, if, in a couple of years, if only, the, if only they had the robust wellness culture that we have now, <laughs> lucky us, right? So, but I, but I do think that her presence is there. And I think you're right to call her an emotional fulcrum. She, she does act on the plot even after her death. 
in very specific ways. And just as we we real people might have a symbiotic relationship with these characters, like we don't know where we related to Joe or Beth or Amy um, because we are like them or or did we become like them because we related right. to them, right? It's a little symbiotic. I feel like Beth kind of allows space for those relationships to happen because the way that she interacts with everyone is so subtle. And I think also that there's a way in which the book deepens because there is tragedy in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about the near misses that happen in, say, Jane Austen's work, which is earlier, obviously, but also very tied to um, the bonds between sisters. And, and you know, those are domestic comedies, more or less. But it is true, not to bring everyone down, but it is true at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice that, that Jane Bennett riding out on a horse and catching a cold, yeah. you know, might have ended badly because that's how things went um, in that century. And and a lot of our attachment to the book, I think, rests on the attachment that we feel between the sisters and among the sisters. And so Beth's death kind of accesses emotions that otherwise wouldn't exist in this book. And I think for that reason, it's obviously very important. I also think that she just represents this moral that recurs throughout the book. And it's really interesting thinking about morals because Joe strips them all out of her her clickbait columns to try to sell them. But the book is really insistent on kind of returning to the idea that Marmy, you know, gives these lessons of be good to your family, be good to other people. Like there's some amount of self-sacrifice there, which I think post-feminism maybe reads a little bit differently. But Beth does embody it and is so loved for it and is so satisfied with it. Like she she's satisfied by the small domestic life that she has. And Joe kind of wants that to be enough for herself but can't get there uh, and I and I like her as a character for having that maybe in a way that doesn't feel quite like anybody I know but it does feel true to that character as she's written mm -hmm. the I guess the thing that I'm missing for Beth in the back half of the book is this relationship with Mr. Lawrence which which is such a huge thing at the beginning and then just disappears like Mr. Lawrence is out of the country when Beth dies and it just doesn't seem important to him at all and that's I don't know you know like the, it, it, I was just like you you went to this trouble to forge this really interesting friendship in the first half of the book and then you know these two sections were published separately like the back half is really a sequel uh, published sometimes as good wives like a different book entirely I'm um, so glad and, that's not the title now <laughs> and I feel like I feel like she kind of forgot about that um, I want to ask you Radika since you're since you're an expert on um on literature of this era, like, do you see Louisa May Alcott lifting it all from other books or am I being uncharitable? I was thinking of when um, Aunt March comes and, um, you know, basically says to Meg, like, you can't marry this John Brooke fellow. And I'm like, isn't that a Pride and Prejudice plot? Like, and that's what spurs <laughs> Meg to be like, I'll marry who I like. And then she does. And I was like, that's Pride and Prejudice. And then I was also thinking, I mean, Louisa May Alcott's... Um, Young sister did die. So Beth's death is based on that. But I was thinking of the death of little Nell, which is, you know, this, uh, this literature event, you know, from this Charles Dickens novel that uh, the old curiosity shop when he killed off this little girl Nell in his book. And it was like people were like weeping on the shore side as the installment of the old curiosity shop came in and little Nell like didn't make it. And it was like basically like the death of Ned Stark of that time where people were like, <laughs> he killed the little girl. Like, how could he? Um, like if that if that was like if that was like the fashion, um, not to not no, to be it, flip about something that happened to her. It but, was you know. the reality. This is 
what I'm saying. I mean, it, yeah, it was the yeah. reality. And I, and I think, to, you know, to your point about, I mean, statistically, if you had four girls, you know, I, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you exactly what it would have been in the mid in mid-century America. But statistically, I think Beth's death is not, you know, it's not a fabrication. And to your point about Mr. Lawrence, I have to wonder whether, you know, he's he's older and he's philosophical. And remember that the the roots of his attachment to Beth have to do with a little child that he lost, I think. Right. I suppose his grand. I suppose a granddaughter, but possibly a yeah. daughter. I can't. Rem- I can't remember. But you know, he's. I think it's a granddaughter. He has processed loss in his life already, and I think that mm. that that maybe you know w- w- the kind of grief that we see from her sisters, from Laurie, even. I sort of tip my hat to him. I mean, it is one of the the benefits of of age is that you you can put things into a different perspective. I, I just, I wouldn't fault him for not being so effective. No, but I think, no. <laughs> but I think, oh, and I know you're not, we love you, Mr. Lawrence, but, um, but I do, I think that, I think that the deaths in these novels, yes, they are dramatic events. And yes, in the case of Little Nell, they became, uh, you know, um, transatlantic sensations. And it wasn't even one of his better books, but, but I think that they happened because um, because those were the mortality rates and those were yeah. the illnesses and and they're really you know there there wasn't much to be done at a certain point about them. But as but as you say, like I think Austin wouldn't because you know maybe it was considered not you know of the fashion to like she's writing comedies as you say. Well, she comedies, had it. So. Yeah. Well, it's it's. An, I've actually written about this about the fact that no one dies in her novels. It's it's a very oh. it's very specific choice um, that she made and and probably too much of a rabbit hole for us to go down. But it does it does. It means that, you know, we're, we're just spared as readers from having to go down those paths. Um, we, can, we can focus on the future and not on dashed hopes or expectations. But I, th- I, think, I think in the case of Beth, you know, it is obviously based on a real death, so there's, there's that. Um, yeah. the, the line that always strikes me when I reread it about Beth is when Joe and Marmee are talking about her condition and... Um, before they even have realized, I think, how weak she feels. And Joe says, you know, she's 18 now, and we still treat her like a child. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly realize, oh, yeah, the, they're growing up, but we've kind of stunted her. She is she is almost like the girl from the TV show who kind of never gets to grow old in our minds. Um, and there's something very poignant about that, that her death allows. Um, why do you think it is we don't see any, uh, as far as I can recall, any mention of, of men dying in the Civil War? We've got both John and Mr. March go off to war, uh, and obviously Mr. March has a close call, but um, we don't, we don't, they're not grappling with any death of soldiers uh, that I can recall in this book. That's an interesting question. I think that, as you say, there's a close call, and we have to assume that that danger is ever-present. Um, not only... Do we not see? We never. The war is never named in the book. I don't think. Oh right. Um, yeah. You know, it's not. It it is a, a historical and political event of the book, but it is in no way our focus. And I think that is just a little bit. Maybe Alcott benefits from you know geographical distance. There. They're living in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, but no, we don't get any of those specifics, actually. We kind of know that from her experience. But um, but the book just doesn't traffic in any specifics as, with regard to politics or the larger world around this domestic world. And 
It's always interesting, I think, to see who, in in terms of writers, who makes those choices about specificity, um, mm. and and you know who chooses to include those kinds of things and who doesn't, and why, um, and whether you know it would be a distraction to be thinking about President Lincoln or President Johnson when we're reading Little Women. Um, or not. I mean, this it's kind of similar to Little House on the Prairie. You know, it's it's like happening in a very specific moment in American history, and we all know that, and we can bring that context to it, but the books proceed without, without direct reference to it, more or less. Um, so it doesn't feel like an absence to me. It feels like a choice. Meg, that's actually maybe a, uh, a transition into Meg, because there's a point where she's trying to uh, be nicer to her husband because she's been too tied up with her children and uh, is trying to talk to him about politics, even though I think she says, like, it seems like the whole point of politicians is for them to call each other names. Um, so it's one of those same as it ever was See, moments to reflect on and, history. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and I do think part of the secret sauce of the timeless classic is that, you're, you know, <laughs> you can you can always say that about politics. It's always true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sadly, you can always say that about war, and it's always true. Yeah. The timelessness for Meg really came up for me when um, it gets into the chapter about her being a young mother. And I, I tweeted the section where she's trying to get her child to go to bed so she can spend time with her husband, who she feels like she's been neglecting as a mother. And he keeps getting out of bed. And then eventually her they just kind of have to let him cry it out, which is a phrase that parents of babies are very familiar with now. Um, and Meg is a character who I kind of struggled with for a lot of the book because she's the oldest and she's responsible. And there's this one chapter where she goes to the ball and gets drunk on champagne. But otherwise, she's this very steadfast presence. But when it got into the chapters about her as a mother and her trying to like make time for her husband and, and the kind of progressive advice she gets from Marmy, which is not just like dress up and be nice to your husband, this old fashioned idea you have, but also to make efforts that he's interested in her and to keep up her own interests and make time for herself. Um, I was impressed by how relatable that remained, even though some of the you know ideas for what women's roles should be, especially when it comes to Meg, can feel old fashioned now. Yeah, I love the part where Marmy's like, let John do some of the parenting. You know what I mean? Like, and talking that, about that, her yeah. husband saying, like, our marriage got stronger when he took over for, for me when I was, I think she was sick or something. Like, how, how yeah. them co parenting made them a better yeah. uh, partners, which was great. Yeah, there's really al- like there's also, as I was looking at the book again in advance of this conversation, I was struck by how much anger management is, yes. is, is in this novel. And it's like, on many levels, so between couples, um, between friends, between sisters, um, Marmy talks about it. It was interesting. I, I think, I mean, I, f- I feel like I'm bringing something of the spirit of our age to the novel when I notice those things, but it is one of the rewards of rereading um, because that hadn't stood out to me before. And it's not about, well, I want to know what you guys think about it, but I was struck by, you know, Marmy's, Marmy is never saying, you won't have feelings of anger, don't have feelings of anger, stifle them. She doesn't say that. She just says you have to learn to cope with them and manage them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's interesting. And that's in some of her marital advice to Meg. It's in some of her advice to Joe um, when she gets into fights with Lori or with Amy. And I, um, And it's in her advice to herself. Yeah, there's this one, she has, you know, she talks about it openly, but then there's this one, like, almost throwaway line where Joe observes a tightening of Marmy's mouth that, you know, she's like, now I understand what that means. Yeah, it's I know like something what that March said, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and knowing like, that Laura yeah. Dern and Meryl Streep are going to be playing them, you just imagine this big little eyes reunion and seeing that <laughs> moment play out on the screen. I, mean, I feel like that nuance is so perfect for someone like Laura Dern, who, who, who really, I think, can communicate that range of emotion. I mean, I think of Big Little Lies and I think of Enlightened, too, which is such mm-hmm. a yes. 
such an amazing experience to bring to this role. But it was impressive to me because, of course, none of the sisters is perfect, but you do kind of feel when you're young, well, Marmy's perfect. If only my mother were just like Marmy. Like, Marmy's the <laughs> best, you know. She always knows the right thing to say. And, and the truth is she works on herself, too, and that's kind of reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's impossible, I think, to not keep comparing this to Pride and Prejudice because of the story of of these sisters, uh, despite the the difference in publication date and uh, countries. But it's impossible to for me to not compare Marmy to Mrs. Bennett, who, you know, is so famously interested in her daughters getting married because that is, you know, the best avenue forward for their success in life. And Marmy has multiple times in this book says stuff like, yeah, if you get married, we want you to marry for love. I don't care about if he's rich too. That's great. We want you to marry for love. Love is so important. And also she gives us one uh, talk. I forget if it's to Meg or Joe about like how it's important to learn like the domestic arts, not so you can build a home for your husband, but just so like any home you live in is comfortable. Even if it doesn't have a husband in it, you just want to be able to like have a nice home. And if you stay with us forever, that's fine too. You know, and I was just like, yeah, Marmy, okay. All right. I, I appreciate you, Marmy. <laughs> yes. Thanks. And I feel like she would say, that to sons too. I hope she. I hope mm-hmm. she would have. Yes, her sons would also have to learn how to make uh, jelly like Meg does. Um, Made me never want to make jelly, that's for sure. That chapter was harrowing. (laughs) Seems very time consuming. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Should we talk about Amy? She's, I think, the last sister we haven't gotten into. And as I said in the beginning, and Joanna, you pointed out that she does have this interesting transformation in the back half of the story. I mean, I definitely, you know, felt frustrated with her in the beginning and really sympathetic for her in the end. I felt like her development played out really beautifully on on this revisit. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think the two big tragedies, quote unquote, of Little Women are are like, you know, Beth's death, uh, you know, and as Radhika says, that gives it heft. And then this Joe and Lori don't end up together, (laughs) like frustrated Roman, you know, we're, we're expecting it. Everyone's expecting it. Um, And Shirley and Gilbert Blythe eventually get together, even though she turns them down, like, why doesn't it work out for, for Joe and Lori? And, um, and then the added indignity of like, oh, and Lori's with Amy, who was such a, like, who burnt Joe's manuscript, how, what's the justice in this world? And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, I've been talking about this on Twitter and to you, Katie, but I think a lot of that comes from any filmic adaptation we see, you know, by necessity has to condense the story and then weights it more heavily on the girlhood than the adulthood. And Amy suffers the most from that because she's young and a little bratty when she was a kid, but matures into someone very, I think, interesting. Um, And, and so when you miss that, when you just yada, 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 all of a sudden Kirsten Dunst and Samantha Morton and yeah, she chides Lori a bit, but you barely know her. You barely know adult Amy. And so it just, it does, it seems wrong and unfair. And then also that Joe ends up with Professor Bear when you're just like, what's happening? And I was interested to sort of dig into the... um you know, the real life story of Louise May Alcott, who did not get married, who, uh, according to some uh, pieces that I read, wanted Joe to not get married, just like she did. Um, and then there was just too much pressure from readership and her editor to have, like, concoct some sort of romantic ending. So from some quotes that I read, it seemed like Louise May Alcott concocted Professor Bear as sort of like a, like, 
a defiantly unromantic choice for Joe to be like, oh, you want romance? Here's this stodgy old bearded German professor. Like, he's not stodgy. He's lovely. I actually really love Professor Bear. But like, um, here's here's the opposite of Lori and you're just going to have to deal with it. And Amy gets Lori there. Suck on that. Um, So I don't know. It's it's interesting to try to defend this ending when I'm not even sure Louisa May Alcott herself buys into Joe lives happily ever after with this professor. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, it, for me, it always eases my mind to read Little Men and Joe's Boys, not to um, not to attach sequels to Greta Gerwig's already busy <laughs> schedule. But I, but I do think it's just helpful because I feel the same, a little bit of that same residual frustration. Of course, I know as a sensible and practical person that Joe and Lori should not be together, but they kind of should anyway. So it's right. hard. It's just hard to accept every time. But it makes me feel better to see Joe so in her element in the later books. And also Amy, by the way, who is, I agree with you, it's hard. She A lot of her development and maturing happens a little bit off screen um, just because our focus is not on her. And so when she and Laurie come together, it does, again, make a lot of sense, but you kind of don't feel it as strongly. Um, mm-hmm. Later in the books, you know, her her character is interesting and she really grows into herself. Um, I, I feel almost like the role of Amy in a film has interesting potential because it's not necessarily there in the plot. A lot of it will be through um, Florence Pugh's ability to kind of draw the viewer into an, a more empathetic relationship with her. Yeah, I really am curious about how Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet's like well-established chemistry from Lady Bird will play out as Joe and Laurie because you do you feel their relationship so immensely in the books, and it's kind of, it's this relationship of the boy next door who's in love with you even though he won't say anything that repeats so often throughout movies and literature, and I fall for it every single time. But I do I I did like Laurie and Amy's romance as it developed, like when you kind of really lean into those chapters in Europe and watch her kind of. Tell him how to live and kind of watch her development, which I think the the most interesting example of it. And this is a segment I don't know that I would expect to make it into a movie, but when she's decorating this table for a, a craft yes. fair, it's a little <laughs> hard to actually understand what is going on in this situation. But some kind of thing where all the women are gathering together, and she just takes the high road on these people who are trying to you know one up her, um, which is just so wise and the thing that we all wish we could do in the face of people trying to take us down. Um, and I'm it's just very, I was, it's very Katie Rich. I'll tell you that right <laughs> you now. Just kill people with kindness. It's the <laughs> it's best classic, way to get out of it. <laughs> classic Katie Rich move. Um, but I, I also think Timothy Chalamet will have chemistry with anyone. So I think you could watch both of those relationships flourish. But you know, he's as as we said in the beginning, he's going to break a lot of hearts. Um, I look forward to it eagerly. Honestly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I can't wait. And the last thing, the last character I want to mention is uh, Mr. March. He's being played by Bob Odenkirk. It's, and it's, it's funny to realize how much of the book Mr. March is actually there for. Cause you don't remember that you remember him just being gone, but you know, he comes home at the end of part one and he's there ish in the background all through part two. And um, I almost wonder once again, if this is Louisa May Alcott having her own like personal revenges. Cause her father by all, like he's, you know, a progressive, a transcendentalist, a feminist, you know, like all this, all this sort of stuff, but also, uh, um, made their lives very difficult. They were impoverished because of sort of the way that he led his life and um, did not have a great relationship. 
um, sort of by what I read with with uh, his girls. And so, like, for her to kind of erase him from the family a little bit, he comes he comes in through the end as as like grandpa, as like bad dads sometimes do. They make great grandpas, but like, but he's sort of absent, even though he's home for the war for a long stretch. And so, um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. And I'm, I'll be interested to see how Bob Odenkirk, you know, whether or not he's essentially a cameo uh, in the film or if he has more to do. I love the idea of him as kind of a warm background presence uh, behind all of these uh, women who are at the center of the story. He feels like great casting to me. I've been trying to figure out who's playing uh, Mr. Lawrence based on IMDb and Chris Cooper's in there without a character listed next to him. So I imagine he's Mr. Lawrence, which is also really interesting casting. Doesn't seem old enough to me, but maybe that's just my own age showing. I'm like, he's supposed to be in his 90s. Just Mr. Lawrence is probably 50. And, um, you know, it was it was a great moment of shock when I realized um, at a certain point that Mrs. Bennett, to go back to Pride and Prejudice, is probably around 36 or 38. So I just throw that out there for some perspective. Um, Goodness. The the olds are not as old as we think. Um, (laughs) And then we grow older than, than they are. And that's a whole other thing. The marrow in my bones just turned to dust when you said that. I think we're maybe at a good wrapping point. So maybe we should just conclude by anything else that we're hoping to see from this Greta Gerwig adaptation. I think we're probably all fans of Lady Bird. There's a lot to be excited for. I think I've, I've planted my flag on uh, Joe and Laurie and wanting to see that play out. What, what are you guys most eager to see? Um, I guess the um, maybe I, I, I tweeted this early on. Um, when I was digging into the cast list, uh, Louis Garel is playing, I think I pronounced that correctly, uh, dashing French actor Louis Garel is playing uh, Professor Bear. And that's just a little more dashing than the professor is usually allowed to be. No knock on Gabriel Byrne. He's just like a little a little older and bearded um, by the time uh, he was romancing Winona Ryder. But I think this might go some way towards healing that sort of... Lori Joe wound uh, when you have this like very handsome Frenchman waiting in the wings. So um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's better that Professor Bear is older and bearded and not conventionally attractive. And maybe that's a more challenging thing. But I, I feel like Greta's like, uh, uh, let's go with the French, the handsome Frenchman instead. Um, <laughs> he's got some excellent so, hair, according to photos oh, online. Oh, it's so good. He's and he's he's you know he's in the Dreamers. Like he's been in a, a million great movies. He's fantastic. So um, I'm excited to see him in the role. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to um, Laura Dern's Marmy and Meryl Streep's Aunt March. Um, And I think that the great balancing act of the book is that the sisters are so individualized and yet so much depends upon their rapport and relationships with each other. And when we have such terrific actors playing the roles of those four sisters, so I'm I'm really excited to see not just how they embrace their own character, but how those characters um, play with each other on the screen. Yeah, the the fact that one of our first photos that we ran in the magazine was of them reenacting one of their plays, which feels like something you could easily cut. It's not essential to the plot, but shows so much of their relationships with each other. I got really excited to see how their imaginations play out in in these things they do as children. Well, right. And they go through a lot of hardship, but they also have a lot of fun. And it's very apparent in the book, and they and they really find fun, innovative and creative ways to do that. So I'm looking forward to seeing that on the screen. Well, we will continue looking forward to Little Women uh, all the way to its opening in December. And then we'll, in the meantime, we'll continue our book club next week with How to Build a Girl. Uh, In the meantime, Radhika, thank you so much for joining us. It's so exciting to finally have you on the podcast and then to get you to talk about literature. It's like a double whammy. It's a total dream. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I hope to come back. We happily anytime. 
The run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Richard, let's go now to your interview with Michelle Williams. Yeah, she's in a movie called After the Wedding that is a, uh, an English-language remake of a Danish film directed by Oscar winner Susanna Beer. This time it's written and directed by Bart Freundlich, who is better known as Mr. Julian Moore. And he has once again tapped his wife to star in the film alongside Michelle Williams. And it's a, hmm, it's a melodrama, I guess, about uh, secrets, family secrets kind of thing, um, you know, coming to terms with things that happened in the past, but also has this interesting layer of class politics, uh, sort of... Philanthropy? <laughs> yeah, philanthropy, the, the, the politics of philanthropy. <laughs> sure. You know, so it, it's it's an interesting kind of soup of a movie, and, and I think that Michelle Williams gives a really nuanced performance in it, which is something we talked about. Um, and then we just talked more broadly about you know, her craft and how she makes choices and prioritizes things in her life. And I don't know, I found her to be really disarmingly friendly and um, thoughtful. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was, I feel like it was a coup for us. I mean, she's a four-time Oscar nominated actress. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to have her on the show. What's interesting, well, just really quickly, and I'm so excited to listen to this interview. Um, what's most fascinating to me about this After the Wedding remake is that I believe Michelle Williams is playing the Mads Mikkelsen, like they gender swapped it. She's playing the role yeah. that Mads Mikkelsen played, which is just like, what a fun act to follow, you know, uh, Michelle doing a Mads role. So I'm so excited to see that and to listen to your interview. Well, I've always thought of Michelle Williams as the American Mads Mikkelsen. So Who hasn't? <laughs> Well, I have the distinct pleasure right now of sitting across the table from one of the stars of After the Wedding, Michelle Williams. Michelle, thank you for being here. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I first saw this movie in very different uh, climate. It was at Sundance in the snow and the cold uh, back in January. And um, and now here we are this many months later with the release of the film. And I'm curious just to go even further back what your sort of origin story with the movie is, um, how it came to you and what made you sign on to it. I was working uh, one afternoon on Janice, I, which is a movie that I very much wanted to make, and I don't really know if it has any hope anymore, but I was I was working away on it one afternoon at home when I got an email from Julie Ann Moore saying, hey, take a look at this script, see what you think. Bart and I really want you for it. And so I put down my Janice script, and I immediately picked up this script, and and when I closed it, I wrote back to her and said, I'm in, and I'm going to start working on it now because Janice is maybe just a a kind of pie-in-the-sky wish, and this is real, and so I'm going to flip my focus to it. I find that you have this 
there's a reaction that happens between you and a piece of material, or it doesn't. And and I was drawn to it. I had that reaction, that thing that I look for where I go, huh, uh, there, there are certain things that I understand that are literal that I'm drawn to, and then there's a kind of more mystical quality, the things that I don't understand why I'm drawn to it, and that's what I've sort of set out to investigate, what it is that I'm going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen where you have to put down the pie in the sky thing for the thing that's ready to go at the moment? I mean, is that kind of the constant process of, of being an actor? Sometimes. One of the things that's hard about being an actor is that there's no certainty and there's no... I always say the best day of being an actor is the day that you get the job because other than that, you're either looking for a job or you are anticipating how you're going to do the job. So there's one day of rest and peace, which is when you have something. Um, But other than that, there's just so much seeking and searching, which must be something that I enjoy doing because a a lot of my life is spent thinking what's going to be next or how am I going to do the thing that's in front of me. Um, But Janice is just this funny thing that just sort of resists being told. You know, it's something that I've been thinking about and uh, working on in my spare time for years, and it just refuses to adhere, <laughs> kind hmm. of like the woman herself. So, <laughs> yeah, there's something metaphorical about that. Yeah, maybe. there, yeah, yeah, there might well be. Um, with after the wedding, um, what was the dynamic like where you're working with a married couple, you know, um, who've done several films together, um, and obviously films on their own? Um, did that change the dynamic of being on set in any sort of noticeable way from other stuff you'd worked on? No, well, the, no. The only thing, the thing that I noticed about it was was the equality that exists in their relationship. They could have healthy disagreements. Yeah. You couldn't, you know, you can't detect who holds the power, which was very impressive yeah. to me. Um, ha- have you seen the movie since they yeah. jiggered with the music? Oh, um, I rewatched it this week, but I uh, don't know that if I, I didn't pick. What, 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 talk about that. I, I don't know. I've only heard. I'm not able to watch. For the most part, I don't watch my work because mm-hmm. it isn't helpful to me. It's It only puts me in my head, and I really try and be on the inside of the character's experience instead of on the outside of uh, the audience's experience. So I don't know per se, but I what Bart was telling me is that they, they worked on the music a lot and that when it screened at Sundance, what he realized in that screening was that the it was too heavy-handed. Mm. The music was really enforcing the audience to react in a certain way and uh, so they stripped it back a lot and he said the experience of the film is is different now. That's interesting. I mean, I did, I think just, you know, as one does with any second viewing, I picked up on different things and and um, and I guess, yeah, the music, that, that, that does make sense now that you kind of lay that out. Another thing I noticed that I really like about your performance in the film is Isabel is such a complicated character, you know. She's doing a lot of good in uh, Calcutta, um, uh, with working with children in an orphanage, and the stereotypical caricature of that type of person would be very sort of flowy and woo-woo and and and, and kind, almost sort of superhumanly kind. Mm-hmm. But Isabel has an edge to her. She has thank a reserve, you. a yeah. prickliness. Uh, can you talk a little oh, bit about, about calibrating that? So, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because sometimes the things that you think that you're working on, you just never know exactly how they're going to come out or if they're going to come out at all. So that is what I was hoping would come across, that she 
was engaged in this kind of work not because it was her nature, but she, but because it was working on her nature. It was something that she was doing, not because she was such a good person, but it was something that she was doing as a kind of penance or to believe herself to be a better person. Uh, there was something in her past that she, a decision that she made, that she was so painful and caused so much shame that she ran from it and invented this life for herself as a way to, I think, unconsciously or consciously make up for what she had done. And I wanted her to feel, I wanted her to feel like somebody who used to be on fire and she learned how to put herself out. I, I called her old tattoos. I wanted something, I wanted her to feel like somebody who was living with a lot of mistakes and was trying to trying to forget as much as she could and so that there was a kind of and that she was a New Yorker that she so there was a kind of edginess or brittleness at the same time well there's a naturalness I wanted her to feel relatively at home in India you know of of the place like she had reacclimatized and that when she came back to New York it was jarring like a like a deer on the highway or something you know that she just didn't belong anymore yeah, I think that's really palpably realized in the film. I appreciate um, that. There's a, it, it's a quick scene, but when um, Isabel's first going to the meeting with um, Julian Moore's character, and she's just walking down a hallway, and there's all these buildings, and she just seems so, it just feels wrong, you know. Oh, I'm very happy to hear you say that. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, well, I that's, mean, that was the exact feeling, you know. That I remember that was actually one of the first things that we shot, and when you're working without dialogue but you know that a lot is being communicated because of the use of space and because of the, you know, that's a very long tracking shot. And so there's so much that I want to be able to communicate in that space and time, but I don't have any words to do it with. And so how do you take these things that are intangible, these things that are thoughts and make them available in a way that can be viewed or ascertained. So I'm, I'm very happy to hear you say that because that's what I wanted it to feel like, like she was out of place. From an outsider's perspective, someone who's not an actor, someone might look at this role and compare it to, say, playing Marilyn Monroe or Gwen Verdon. And those, are, those were performances that required certain changes in voice and bearing that would seem technically trickier, you know, again, from an outside perspective. What makes playing someone like Isabel hard? So what what I had wanted to do, what I saw when I read the script, what I thought was, oh, it's an opportunity to do the kind of work that I feel in some ways the closest to, which is bare bones independent cinema, but to attempt to bring to it some of the things that I've been working on in like the last five years, five to seven years or so, there's an attribute of, of film, this idea of stillness that people are really drawn to. You watch a performance that has stillness to it and you can uh, attribute a lot of depth to it or you can you can really overlay it with a lot of impressions. And at a certain point, that kind of lost interest to me. I, I lost my own interest in that because I don't necessarily want to be overlaid on. I, I, I want to have a point of view and present something very specific and thought out and I, I, I don't really want to be projected on that much and so I kind of lost interest in this stillness and I moved into I did 
plays in the last five years and, I, and I've, I've studied and I've trained and I've um, tried to bring a kind of changeability and kind of like full-bodiedness to the work that I do. And I was curious if I could relate that to this, sort of like channel that through stillness because what these, you know, indie films, these humanist sort of spare this world of naturalism, I thought, can I bring something that um, is everything that I've been working on in stage and uh, can I bring that into this, can I put that through this medium? Um, and so I thought that would be a nice, this would be a nice place to sort of experiment with that. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up that that stillness. I mean, I there was a, I'm not going to name names, but there was another movie that I saw at Sundance this year, and it was a young actress who I think is new to the industry. And I was just like, they're asking her to do nothing. I mean, it was just like she they just wanted her to be a blank sort of thing that light was projected on, you know. And I can understand the appeal of that, but it's also like I I could see also being like, no, I want more. I want to sort of I guess what the theater offers really because it's so visceral and immediate. Yeah, and you're and you and you have you have a view of somebody's entire body, and so these, so the thought of you know sometimes you feel like a little bit like a head in a box when you're in a movie, you're kind of trapped. So much of your work exists in a close up, and that's in, you know that has its own qualities and benefits. But I became more and more interested after playing Marilyn about how do I make my cells over from like the top of my head to the tips of my toes to the ends of my fingers how do I remake my cells in a complete level so that I'm not bound to being Michelle over and over again because if I'm going to do this for a long time I don't want to I don't want to keep replicating myself I want to be able to slip these skins so that it doesn't get old for me or for anybody who's watching and that for me requires a kind of uh, a different approach. Mm-hmm. So there is obviously that emotional human, um, you know, drama aspect of, of after the wedding, but there's also a political dimension to the film, you know, in terms of what it's talking about class and, and in particular, and, and just the function of money with Isabel's character, you know, she's doing all this good work in India. And I think that a sensitivity that, that people I think increasingly have about, narratives about white Western people in, you know, countries that uh, are predominantly uh, people of color and, and, you know, certainly socioeconomically not as in good shape as maybe the United States. This movie doesn't feel that way. It doesn't, it doesn't suffer from a, from a white savior complex or anything like that. But I'm curious, when you were making the film, what your thoughts were in terms of that political discourse? Was that in your mind when making the film? Or can you do you have to kind of push that away? No, it was very much in my mind because it was... You know, it's something that we deal with as New Yorkers, although I don't know where you don't deal with it at this point in America, but it's always on my mind as a New Yorker because these two realities abut each other um, constantly. You're constantly presented with, like, why, why am I able to move through the world in the way that I'm able to, and why is this person having to ask for a dollar um, and how do I continue to move through the world when it's really hard to ask for help I always say that to my daughter you know if, if they if you if, if somebody has to ask they need it more than we do it's it's really hard to put yourself in a position where you're asking and basically hearing no you know or people walk by you all the time um, so it was very much on my mind just in terms of our experience of, of being New Yorkers 
And it was on my mind because I'd been to India. And when you've been exposed to that kind of poverty, it shatters your tolerance for uh, so much of what stands in for conversation. (laughs) So many sort of Western complaints, it really shatters your tolerance uh, for that. And I, and I, I wanted to see if there was a way when Isabel was in New York, I wanted to see if there was a way that she could always have India on her mind or always have, you know, that you can't unsee, uh, that she can't unsee. And so that's the lens that she experiences all of New York through and, uh, you know, all of her interactions um, with Teresa. Yeah, I was thinking watching it again uh, about the movie that was pretty underseen uh, last year, A Private War with Rosamund Pike. I saw that recently. Yeah, where she's, I mean, not to compare India to a war zone, certainly, but like that she's she's drawn back to this difficult place. And when she's not in it, in it when she's in the, the relative lap of luxury, it's just like itchy clothing on her. Like she can't. And I feel like Isabel's similar. Like I, I feel like there, I got that energy in your performance. Again, thank you. I was hoping that would transmit, and I'm very happy to hear that you think it does. So I know that I feel that way, that there are certain things that you experience and you can't unsee them, and and you take them with you in your day-to-day interactions, and not necessarily in a bad way. I don't think it would be such a bad thing if, if we, if we uh, all went to a third... I was... I was glad to be able to have taken my daughter to India twice now so that her sense of reality is expanded because I think it it makes it possible to live a, a deeper and um, uh, more grateful life and to realize that to be able to help is actually a privilege. And if you're in a position where you can help, it's really your duty and your, your privilege to be able to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, switching gears a little bit, you know, you're talking about switching skins and regrowing and, and, and I think we see a lot of that happening in, um, Fosse Verdon, which congratulations, by the way, on your Emmy nomination. That's very exciting. I want to get into the Gwen of it all, but first I'm just curious, like, what was it like kind of going back? I mean, this is a limited series, but like going back into that t- the television sort of model, was that a big shift after doing so many years of film? It was a big shift for me mentally because I spent six and a half years on a television series and that was 20 years ago or something. And in those days, it, it carried a stigma. And I spent a lot of time trying to get that stigma off Mm -hmm. of me. I spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time trying to wash that off and work it off. And so I had had this kind of, uh, that's a place that I came from. It's not a place that I want to go back to, uh, because it was difficult to, to work, to separate myself from that early TV identity. And people kept telling me it's different now. Television's different. And I still didn't believe them. Uh, and then Something that's true about me is that I'll pretty I'll do pretty much anything to work at home. And so this shot in New York, and when they came to me about it, I thought, well, this is I would go back to I would I'll try television for this because it combines so many things that I'm interested in in terms of song and dance and theater and uh, and working in New York. And what I found was 
what I found was that it's really nice to make work where you're well supported, not just with words, but with money. And that made a huge difference in terms of my process because often my process is limited by time and money. And FX, when I would say, you know what, I thought it was going to be 10 dialect lessons, it's actually going to be 20 dialect lessons, they didn't blink an eye. And when uh, Sam and I felt like we weren't exactly ready to start shooting because the first thing that we started with our very first day of shooting was that breakup scene in Mallorca on the beach. And we asked for another week. And I said, Sam, they're never going to give it to us. You know, that costs money and they're not going to pay to accommodate us. And they said yes. And they pushed it by a week. So at every turn, I was so surprised to be respected in this way that if I if I said something, they took me at face value. And that makes a really big difference to the the product that you're able to turn out in the end, the support that you get in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys, I mean, I think it's, it's worth the wait because you and Sam Rockwell, who plays uh, Bob Fosse, to your Gwen Verdon, have, have that that chemistry that is, uh, it feels very hard won, you know, because it's so exact. And, and, and this is a, a unique relationship, one that began as romance, then becomes this creative collaboration. Um, I know you don't you go back and watch your work after the fact, but did you feel that energy um, when filming with Sam? I mean, is it is it is it clear to you then, or is it only something we can see after the fact? It was clear to me. Sam and I, we always say that we're so surprised that this was the first thing that we ever worked on because mm-hmm. we, we like to make similar things. We work in similar worlds. We we have some of the same friends. There's so much crossover in our interests that we were surprised that this was the first time that we were ever paired together. So I think we have a real affinity for each other naturally and a real respect for each other uh, inherently. And so that all came with us when we started working. And we were also bonded by terror. We were both... We both felt like it was the most challenging thing we'd ever tried to do. And so we were completely in that together. And, you know, my struggles were his struggles in terms of how are we going to do this aging and how are we going to capture their, their, the, the dancing and the singing and their voices and the, how are we going to deal with the prosthetics? And so we, we shared the same worries and anxieties. And so we were really, we were there for each other in every possible way. Did it stoke an interest in doing more like dance kind of stuff down the road? I, I wish that God had made me a better dancer and a better cook. Those would be like the two <laughs> things that I wish that I was like truly excellent at. Um, I would love to keep singing and dancing for the rest of my life because it makes me feel happy while I'm doing it. It makes me feel like a kid. I feel joy. I feel freedom. And and so I I notice that I keep finding these ways to sneak it in, even though I'm I'm not a dancer dancer. Um, but I, I keep finding these parts where somebody will let me dance a little. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good, you know, if there's a little thing in a script, you can make a note, I get to dance. Oh, I'll dance. Um, so, you know, talking about your theater, um, you know, you did uh, Blackbird and you did Cabaret. So that's really intense, two-hander, you know, contemporary drama and then, you know, classic mid-century musical You've done tiny, tiny Kelly Reichardt indies. You've done Venom, which I loved. Um, <laughs> oh, what thanks. a fun, weird movie um, <laughs> that was. Is there any genre, form, or whatever that you kind of haven't tackled yet that you want to? Or is there one that you say, I'm never going to do that? I'd like to do more theater. Um, I think the learning is 
It's very painful because you are doing it in front of people and there's no stopping it. There's no sort of pulling the train back into the station. But the growth rate that you experience, there's nothing else like it. And so to to make a long life and a long career of this, you have to get better at it to go do the next thing and then the next thing. And working in theater is the place where I know that no matter what happens, I will come out of it better. So it's worth the cost and how excruciating it is to uh, perform something eight times a week, six days a week, uh, in all kinds of weather. Somebody once said that to me, you know, to get better at something. He was talking about surfing and he said, you have to do it every day in all kinds of weather. And I think about that all the time, that that's how I practice the thing that I do is that I try and do it every day in all kinds of weather. Yeah. So you're someone who, I mean, you, it sounds like you kind of thrive on being busy. I mean, you like to have something in the works at any given time, or, or are you someone who takes chunks of time off? I take chunks of time off. Like right now I'm in the middle of one and I, there's nothing that I want to do or think about doing. I'm really enjoying undoing. Fosse Verdon was a big commitment that started a year ago. I, I got the part in July and I started working on it immediately and we finished at the end of March and I was ready for a break when it was over and it needed a break because the the off time is actually like the refueling time and where you sort of pick up little clues on what you might be interested in next. Um, so right now I'm very happy to be doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, some press, I guess a little some bit. Press, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of press. When you have that downtime, um, are you watching things? Are you watching other people's work or does that kind of like too much, like too much like work? No, no. It's a really nice time to be able to put stuff, you know, you're, you're in this period where you're just outputting all the time while you're working. And so these rest periods are important to do input. So you, you need to like fill yourself back up with things that are beautiful and things that are good and things that make you think that you you want to try making something again. You know, the, the feeling of being inspired. So it's actually a, a time of, yeah, I've been watching, watching things. Because you don't really watch, when you're working, you know, that TV show is just such a huge commitment and it's too difficult to watch something while you're working on something else. So, so now I'm watching and reading. But it's really all kinds of things. It's not just like a direct connection to... Um, watching movies or TV necessarily. It's really like it's it's daydreaming. It's going on a walk. It's having a conversation. It's thinking about, it's like a line in a poem. It's it's like all available material that you kind of stuff it all in and then you wait to see what's going to come out in the next bit of work that you decide to take on. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're not someone who stresses yourself out about like social media and all that kind of, because uh, you have a good friend who's very good at social media. She's excellent um, at it, yes. Busy Phillips, I'm referring to. Um, yes. But how about yourself? I mean, are you, is that kind of like something you won't, you won't really dive into too much or? Yeah, I don't think it's for me. Yeah. No. I mean, I can barely keep up with texts and I feel like I'm on my phone too much as it is. And the only thing I use my phone for is texting and food delivery and I still feel like I'm overly attached to it so I can't really imagine um, a world where I double down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I ask because you know I I've, I've found in recent years that 
my sort of downtime when I would normally, you know, be watching stuff that I didn't have to watch for work, you know, catching up on that TV series or watching that that little, you know, tiny movie I missed. I, I, I'm finding oh, I don't have time for that anymore. And it's like, well, because you're on Twitter. It's you know, it's it's terribly time consuming. I worry about it a lot. I think about it a lot. And as and as little as I use my phone, which I think compared to a lot of people, because I don't have any social media, isn't that much. It still feels like it's completely taken over my life. I have a hard time sitting down to commit to a novel. I have a hard time saying I'm going to give myself two hours to just watch a movie and to not try and do two things at once. The shame about these phones is that they promised to make our lives more expedient and to save us time, but they wind up taking all of our time. And they're so hard to limit because they're, they feel great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's like always something, it's like looking at the horizon and you just always see these ships coming, you know, it's just like this cycling like what's next what's next so um, I'm trying to do less on my phone not not more yeah I'm um, you know a kind of a hypocrite because I'm a co-host on two different podcasts here at VF um, and yet I think podcasts have ruined the subway read you know because now I listen to something and I don't read the New Yorker or I don't you know finish the chapter of the book and it's it's uh, it's too bad um, but but I love a podcast yeah. don't get hard yeah. on yourself yeah. it's like they're 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 good for they're good for people. I know, but like now, when you see somebody with a book, it feels like you're watching a movie about the past. You know, you're like, oh, look <laughs> at that, that time traveler, <laughs> <laughs> or that they're being deliberately showy. It's like, are you yeah. really reading The Stranger at <laughs> nine a.m.? Um, so you know, in your in your consumption of other people's work, books, poems, movies, movies, TV shows, you know, after the wedding is a is a remake of a of the Susanna Beer film. Um, is there anything that you've come across that you're like, I would love to adapt that. I'd love to to remake that and work on it. Nothing that shoots to mind necessarily, but I'm not much of a producer, mm -hmm. I guess I would say. I, I don't really think about making things from scratch. I'm, I think of myself as very much of being kind of like a worker bee. You know, I get my task and I set to work on it, as opposed to kind of conceiving of something from the ground up that feels uh, like too much to me, honestly. I feel like... I can just sort of barely play these characters and then do my life as a woman and a mother. So to kind of be with something at its inception, I don't think I've ever really truly been a part of that. I've never thought that big. Right, right. Well, you know, maybe maybe Janice will come together and, and then you'll, you'll, you'll have been with that since the beginning, right? Yeah, um, yeah but yes, maybe. Although uh, at some point I'm going to get too old. Although she looked... <laughs> She looked 47 when she was 27. So, <laughs> And also all that new technology. You know, I just saw clips of the Scorsese movie where they make Robert De Niro look 25 years younger. So you've got plenty of time. And does it look? It looks pretty good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, you can notice it a little bit. But I think if you didn't know it was there, mm -hmm. you might not notice. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, in the meantime, I think people should go and watch uh, After the Wedding. Um, Michelle is terrific in it. If you haven't yet watched Fosse Verdon, go and watch that and, you know, cheer her on at the Emmys. Uh, in the meantime, Michelle, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. And again, if you want to read along with our book club, our book next week will be How to Build a Girl by Kayla Moran. Uh, so please join us for that. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? At Cookie Figowitz. Mm -hmm. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. 
This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best extremely niche podcast spinoff goes to Joanna Robinson. Has there ever been a bad coal miner movie? I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. From PRX.